This episode is dedicated to my friend, Artem Tepler. Artem was a huge part of the real estate community and the real estate Twitter community and left a huge impression on many. One of the nicest, most genuine, kind guys that I've met along the way and to hear of his passing was tragic. On this episode, I have Andrew Kirsch, who is an attorney based out of LA that knew Artem and knows the real estate industry as well as anybody that I've come across, and Zach Street, who is a capital markets advisor that understands both the debt and equity side very, very well. We have a great conversation today about how to navigate tough situations in real estate. We have been on a bull run for a long time, and we're now entering a period where a lot of our peers and a lot of folks in the industry are going to have situations that they're going to have to navigate and work through. The good news, we end on a very positive note. There are solutions to all of these things. And a lot of it has to do with your character going into them and how you handle yourself. But the good news is there are solutions to tough situations. So today is a huge learning experience for me on all the different components of a deal gone sideways and things that you can do. In the show notes, there is a link, a GoFundMe link for Artem's daughter. The real estate community has already come together to raise over $200,000 and we're continuing to raise for that. And so if you would like to check that link out, please see it in the show notes. And as always, enjoy today's episode. I think we're gonna start with personal guarantees. I think, look, the market's been great for a long time. When you talk to people that have been in this for cycles, you'll hear older folks say, I would really hesitate signing personal guarantees. But I think over you know multi-decades of up and to the right, people tend to forget what they mean. And so maybe we could start there from a legal perspective, maybe a lending perspective, like what is a personal guarantee and are there different types of guarantees? We'll start there. So there are there are really two different types of loans. There's a non-recourse loan and a recourse loan. And even with a non-recourse loan, there's still a recourse component. So to take a step back, when somebody talks about a non-recourse loan, it means generally that if you know it do, if the if the project doesn't go well and the lender needs to enforce its remedies and foreclose on the property and and ends up owning the property regardless of what the value of that property is the borrower and guarantor are off the hook the lender has taken the property and they're now the owner of the property with one key exception and that's called non-recourse carve-out guarantee which is a list of what we typically call the bad boys, where if you generally lie, cheat, steal, or also have an environmental issue, then the lender can come after you in addition to owning the property. So that's one bucket of loans, a non-recourse loan with a non-recourse carve-out guarantee. The other bucket of loans is a recourse loan. It could be partial recourse. It could be full recourse. And that's where if there's a deficiency after a lender forecloses on the property, the lender has the right to pursue the guarantor for that deficiency. If it's a partial recourse, it's up to the, the maximum that's stated in the guarantee. And if it's a full recourse, 
then the lender can be fully made whole on loan balance, on debt service that may not have been paid, on legal fees and other costs and expenses. How often on a personal guarantee do you think they're actually enforced? I think that was a common question that came up. We sign them. At like, at what point do they start enforcing them, and are they generally enforced, or is there some? Is there a lot of steps of a workout that tends to happen, you know, before they try and enforce the the personal guarantee? It's more a legal question, but I can I can step in and, and take a first crack at that. It really depends where we are in the cycle. Is the answer over the last ten years, maybe prior to the last few months, you hadn't seen a lot of enforcements of deficiencies or personal guarantees because you haven't had to. Because when a foreclosure has occurred, generally the loan was at a lesser amount than the value of the property. So there was no reason, there would be no trigger for a deficiency. There would be no trigger for a bank to say, hey, I sold your property and I sold it at a $10 million loss to my loan amount. I'm going to come after you, Mr. Personal Recourse Guarantor, individually, and and you owe me a $10 million deficiency or, or liability. In the aftermath of the GFC, you did see recourse guarantees getting perfected. So you did see banks and other lenders coming after guarantors individually when there was this deficiency. So I think, I think the answer is it really depends on where we are in the cycle. I haven't seen it so far um, in this, I guess, downturn that we're in. Andrew may be in a better place to uh, discuss it. But I do think it's probably coming in the next year, you know, with higher for longer. So it is it is something to watch out for. It doesn't happen immediately. Also, to your point, Chris, it takes time. You have to go through the foreclosure process. The property has to go REO or, re- or what we call real estate owned, which means that the lender, either a bank or a debt fund, takes it back and owns it. They then have to conduct their, their auction or their sale, sell it, and then a loss has to occur. After all of those things occur, if there is a deficiency, so if the project is or property is sold for less than a loan amount and there is a personal guarantee, there is a full recourse obligation, then the bank, as Andrew mentioned, can go after the borrower. But a lot of things have to occur before that happens. Taking a step back, the conversation is is really, and Zach, curious of your thoughts and also Chris, your thoughts as the type of borrowers who are signing full recourse guarantees versus the type that aren't. I would say in our practice, 90% of our transactions are non-recourse loans. You know, they'll have a they'll have a non-recourse carve-out guarantee standard. And if there's a construction component, there will be a completion guarantee, which is the third guarantee which essentially requires the guarantor to deliver a completed project. Now, some borrowers will ask me, well, what's the difference between a completion guarantee and a, and a full recourse guarantee? Because if I still have to spend the money to deliver a completed project, isn't that essentially the same as a recourse? Yes and no. If the value of the property is less than the completed project, then he, then the recourse guarantee would it e- even create more liability as what Zach and I just described, while the completion guarantee stops your exposure at construction costs. 
And, and so in our practice, generally, and this is a, a complete generalization, those that are syndicate getting outside investor money, whether it's through a syndication, a fund, joint venture, those will usually be a non-recourse loan product versus a high net worth individual who is just betting on themselves and let's just say has balls of steel and it doesn't, <laughs> it doesn't matter to them how, you know, they're, they're, they, they, they're not answering to any other investors. They would prefer the, 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 the cheaper cost of capital, the cheaper debt and sign recourse. There's a really important point, Andrew, you made a great point, and, and there's sort of a really important point that flows from this. The reason for what Andrew said is because if you are in a typical joint venture structure and you are doing a 90-10 deal or an 80-20 deal where you, the sponsor, who are expected to sign on the guarantees are only 10% of the equity or 20% of the equity, and your joint venture partner is 90% of the equity or 80% of the equity, you're not really incentivized to sign a repayment guarantee. That's a lot of risk to you, the sponsor, and you are a small amount of the equity. The upside is personally guaranteed or recourse loans usually carry a significantly lower rate than non-recourse loans, as they should. They are less risky to the lender, but sponsors, borrowers, usually aren't incentivized to do that because the deficiency, should it ever occur, is their own personal liability. It wouldn't be the liability of the partnership in the absence of some legal drafting that you know somehow it would make it the partnership's liability, but that isn't usually what happens. And so when, you know, when you're doing a large transaction, let's say it's a $100 million deal, let's say you're getting a, I don't know, a $60 million loan to use easy numbers and you have $40 million of equity, and then 90% of that $40 million or $36 million is, is basically raised from a single large institutional partner or multiple, and the sponsor only has $4 million of his own GP capital in the deal, which most of the time is syndicated to some degree also, you are asking that sponsor to sign a full repayment guarantee when he only has a fraction of the equity in the deal. That's usually incongruent. Most sponsors won't do that. And, and so that's why a vast majority of deals in the middle market and upper middle market space usually don't involve recourse obligations. Where they do is where it's one person writing that entire $40 million check. Yep. Okay. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to drill deep on just a few nuances with ha how we get to personal and non-recourse. But really quick, you said Personal is usually cheaper than non-recourse. In a traditional market, how much cheaper, and I know it's kind of nuanced, but in general, how much cheaper is a personal recourse loan than maybe a non-recourse loan, maybe by basis points or however you want to answer it? Yeah, I'll take it. And then Andrew, you see this a lot also, just on the finance side. So our usual rule of thumb is 200 to 300 basis points, depending on the type of loan. You know, Construction might be a little wider, bridge might be a little bit narrower, but that's what a normal market looks like. That isn't actually the case in today's market because you don't have a functioning regional bank system and regional banks were the dominant purveyors of recourse financing and they are largely on the sidelines in the absence of you know big, big deposits. And even then they aren't doing a lot of deals. So it's, it's almost academic today 
But usually speaking, Chris, it's 200 to 300 basis points. So it's significant. So one, can everybody get an on-recourse loan or does it have to be like you have to have a track record? Maybe your LTV has to be at a certain amount. So it's easy to say, like Andrew, you said 90% of my clients use non-recourse loans. I remember when I first got in the industry, there wasn't a non-recourse loan on the planet for me unless maybe... I was at 30% LTV or something where it didn't even make sense. So maybe the question is, at what point can somebody get a non-recourse loan? And are there ways to get a non-recourse loan like earlier in your career than you should have besides sacrificing LTV? Let me just jump in. It's an interesting, it's a great question, Chris. And, you know, we're here, you know, because unfortunately, you know, Arden Tepler, you know, commits suicide and, and we all knew him and, Sean Tepler, his partner's Paul Schoen, you know, client of ours. I think they also did business with Zach and he, he was on my podcast or they were on my podcast and, you know, they spoke and I think Art, Artem is the one who did speak about it. When they were starting out, no one would give them a non-recourse loan. They had to bet on themselves. They had to sign recourse. The only lending options for them and the type of deals they were doing started with small home flips and then smaller apartment buildings. And then it grew to larger apartment buildings or the regional banks. And as Zach mentioned, most regional banks are going to require recourse. That's just how they're set up. Zach, I mean, we do a lot of business with, with debt funds and private, you know, debt funds primarily are, is a non-recourse lender, but do you have to graduate in order to get there? Yeah, uh, it, it's a really good question, and this is a conundrum for 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 new sponsors that are starting out. So, generally speaking, yes, you do. There are, I guess, higher octane non recourse lenders that are out there that might back a sponsor on their first deal, but I think rate is going to be extremely high, so there is a cost to that. But usually, your kind of garden variety debt funds that are out there when we're talking about, I think the deals that we traffic in, Andrew, which are probably, you know, you and I, I think similar deals, call it in the 30 million to call it 150 million total capitalization range. It's extraordinarily difficult to get a non-recourse loan in that range on your first deal. The truth is it's extraordinarily difficult to get a recourse loan if it is your first deal in that range for a variety of reasons, but starting with you don't have the track record to do so. And so the primary way that we help, quote, first-time sponsors, and the reason I say first-time in quotes is it might be someone's first project, really, but rarely, or it could be somebody's first project as part of a new platform where they worked for a large institution and they spun out, right? We kind of represent entrepreneurial sponsors doing institutional-level deals, and we help them arrange financing. And so for guys that don't have their own track record or balance sheet, we typically recommend, and we can arrange this, that a co-GP come into their deal who can credit enhance their deal. And that is probably the simplest, it isn't simple, but that is that is the primary way, let's say, that we help younger, newer sponsors or sponsors with a limited track record to get financing. And 95% of the time when we do that, to Andrew's point, and most loans that we do also are non-recourse. There is the rare time where somebody will want to sign recourse for the cost savings that we mentioned, but that's the way to do it. The way to do it is to bring somebody else in who has a large balance sheet. You have to pay them for the pleasure of doing so, 
and they will uh, afford your deal credit enhancement, and that will allow you to get a non-recourse loan. Okay. Before we move into kind of what happens when a deal starts going sideways, is there anything that comes to mind when I ask the question, while you're originating your loan docs or while you're originating your legal docs, are there things that maybe uh, somebody less experienced never asked for that come to mind of like, hey, make sure you're checking on this before you sign on something? Hire an attorney. I would suggest you hire Andrew. It is the first (laughs) thing I tell people, seriously. Hire a good attorney who knows what they're doing. Do not hire somebody that has never worked on transactions before, or frankly, many of them. I'd say the same thing if you were hiring a capital advisor, but in this instance, you know, in the wake of what occurred, hire Andrew. It would be an enormous mistake not to. Go ahead, Andrew. You probably have the more detailed stuff. (laughs) (laughs) Now I have to, now I have to buy uh, lunch the next time we (laughs) see each other. So great. Look, Chris, there's so many different ways a borrower can protect themselves in loan docs. You know, you'd be surprised how many borrowers feel that loan docs are to be negotiated. And for some lenders, that is true. You're not going to negotiate with a bank and they're going to have their pre-printed form in California. We call them these laser pro form docs. I don't know in Texas if, you know, regional banks have a typical standard a set of loan docs, but it is hard to get negotiations from a bank. Debt funds, these private lenders, the smaller balance loan amounts, sometimes harder to negotiate. But when you're talking about loan amounts north of 10, north of 20 million, and they serve up a hundred page loan agreement and 14 different ancillaries, there's a lot you can do, you know, from notice and cure periods to you know, b- b- giving yourself uh, latitudes and with respect to certain covenants and conditions, extensions, you know, things of that nature. But ultimately, a set of loan docs is going to be lender friendly. They just are. But around the margins, you can try to rebalance them to make them more fair. And these debt funds are in the business to provide loans, to get their capital out, and they want to be seen as cooperating lenders. And so you'd be surprised how much you can negotiate with these sophisticated debt funds. And it's it the negotiation isn't just at the loan doc stage. And you know, you'll know you you probably know all these answers, Chris, because you guys do a ton of business. But the negotiation really starts with with us and with your counsel or anyone's counsel at the term sheet stage. Because there's going to be a lot of things in that term sheet that pertain to some of what we're talking about. The term sheet will and should outline the type of guarantees that are required. You know, generally, if there's construction component, there will be completion. There almost always is carve out or the bad act guarantees. But is there a carry guarantee, right? Is somebody going to be on the hook for debt service, for property taxes, and for insurance? And if so, for how long? Does that extinguish upon foreclosure? What sort of net worth and liquidity covenants, you know, are going to be required? Is this a recourse or a non-recourse loan? So, you know, on a, on a kind of at a high level, there's that. There's also, is there an equity pledge, which we kind of didn't discuss, but that's a fast track way for a lender to foreclose or take control of the asset and, and, you know, do the notice and cure periods for that mirror the notice and cure periods for a typical mortgage foreclosure or not. So there are some pretty threshold items that can be negotiated up front. And so I would 
submit that that the sort of understanding of the transaction from the perspective of what lenders' remedies might be. Certainly, the meat of it is is in the loan doc phase, but it, it starts much earlier. It starts when we begin to source term sheets and we begin to put them side by side, and we you know we wonder who might be the friendliest to us. And 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 maybe this is like where we currently are. Do you think that like when things are up into the right for many years, maybe there's covenants in your loan docs that banks maybe they overlook or they're a little lighter on? And are you seeing banks right now? really say the it's in the it's in the it's in the document we're enforcing it whereas maybe two or three years ago it might have you know gone unnoticed or at least they would have been a little friendlier what what are you seeing right now with lenders and how they're treating their covenants i have a real life example single tenant commercial quasi office a year prior to the loan matured and the the tenant had an extension right and the tenant exercised their right or refused to exercise the extension the lender was aware of it months almost a year went by nothing happened the maturity was actually october 3rd this past month and right before loan maturity because loan maturity was coterminous with lease maturity the lender inform the borrower that all the cash flow that they received during the last 12 months of the lease should have gone to the lender because it was an event of default or a breach of a covenant because the tenant, the sole tenant, did not extend the lease. And we're in the middle of battling with the lender on so many different grounds, waiver issues, but even they're misinterpreting the loan docs. And this is purely a money grab because they know the value of this asset is far less than the loan principal. And so any way they can recapture some dollars, they are. And this is a gigantic stretch. And this is one example. I, I can add to that, Chris. We started seeing, uh, Andrew can speak much more to what happens once a loan closes, because uh, our focus is really arranging the financing and getting it closed. But I would say uh, about a year ago, we began to see a real tightening, even amongst the debt funds, on what they would and what they wouldn't allow in terms of loan doc negotiation. So Andrew's point is correct. There's a lot you can negotiate in debt fund loan documents, they are robust. Again, get great counsel, but we saw it tightening. Uh, we had one deal that we worked on in the hotel space for a sponsor that was pretty prolific, I'll leave their name out of it, and an equity partner that was giant, and it was a relatively small loan. It was maybe a $25 million loan. I think we spent two months, and, and the lender was a big investment bank, but through their sort of debt fund silo. I think we spent two months and an enormous amount of legal dollars negotiating replacement guarantor and transfer provisions, which somewhat relate to our conversation, but not 100%, two months. The legal fees on that deal on a $25 million loan ended up being $600,000. And I, I think the re that's crazy. But they were not Sklar Kirsch. They were not Sklar Kirsch. They were not Sklar Kirsch. Congrats, Andrew. 
Yeah, no, but but I bring that up because that was the beginning of 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 a real tightening in our minds. That was a sponsor and a very large equity partner that were, I think, rightfully pretty upset and frustrated. And the lender was just saying, like, look, we we normally give on items. We're not going to give on this. Okay, pause a week. But you you got to give here. No, we're we're going to pause two weeks now. And it was literally a game of chicken. And, and, and begrudgingly, the sponsors and the equity partner knew they had to close because they had a maturing loan with another big bank who was not going to extend either this off their books. And so we had to close it. And, you know, the legal fee was three times what we charge. And it's very unusual to see that on a deal of this size, but it really related to a tightening. Since then, you know, we've seen this occur on other deals, but sponsors have had to give more because it's become a lender market that's out there. And and so we haven't seen a situation maybe that egregious sort of sins, but that was the beginning of when I really saw like, okay, the tides have shifted and, and you do need to be very, very careful and read what you are signing up for, but the ability to negotiate, you know, maybe more limited than it was because of market conditions. Is there a is there a look back? So anybody that's listening right now that says, yeah, I blew through some covenants, but we're good now. And it's kind of going off what both of you have just said. And and I won't go too into a story we're dealing with even in our own portfolio. But is there a look back period that once you've cured the covenant and you're far enough down the road, that busted covenant no longer is good? Because I think the message here and, and anybody listening is it would be prudent to at least look at your last 12 months of history and see if you've blown through any covenants, even if you're in good standing right now. Because what I'm starting to hear our lenders calling up their sponsors going, hey, remember back in February when that tenant blew out? Here we are. We Because what? You have a 3.9 fixed loan. We're losing money on your loan. And our bank board wants every dollar back that we can get. What's the look back period? And what should people be doing right now to go, look, I just want to make sure I really am in, in good standing? Yeah, well, we have a legal theory called "go after yourself." If if that were to occur, um, <laughs> the you know the these covenants. Let me even take a step back. I think what you're finding here is, especially lenders that may, if they're having issues or there's a slowdown in originating new new loans, originators are now playing the role of asset manager. They're scouring through their loan docs and figuring out ways to protect themselves and add additional revenue or, or or try to get back as much money as they can because of the concern that the principal is less than the value. So I think that's what's going on here. Typically, these low doc covenants on cash flow, you know, if you blow uh, a DSCR, debt service coverage ratio test, then usually these loans are set up where you go into cash management and lenders can then sweep the cash flow. And then only until you've satisfied usually an elevated DSCR test for multiple quarters in a row, do you get out of the penalty box. Now, can a lender retroactively put you in a penalty box when you were in, when you blew a DSCR covenant, but now are in good standing? I would take that on. I don't think the lender is going to be able to, even though there are non-waiver provisions, you know, your standard provisions that'll say, even if a lender doesn't enforce its remedies, they can subsequently 
But to the extent you've cured it, then I don't think there's much the lender can do. But I, Chris, I would imagine that the covenants are not cured for most borrowers out there, especially because the way, and this is at the term sheet stage, Zach, I think we should get into it, of how these DSCR tests are defined. They're, they're so, they, they, it, it is extremely punitive to the borrower, so much so that it doesn't even reflect reality. And it's almost impossible to get out of once you're in. Because they'll they'll amortize the loans, even if it's an interest-only loan. They'll have heavy amortization at like 25 years instead of 30. And it's like, I'm in, I'm in the penalty box. How do I get out of it? It's not a two-minute minor for holding. This is just, this is a long, a long-term deal. Zach, what do you what do you think? I, I I agree with your point very much. And we're starting to see a lot more scrutiny on, you know, what are the cash management triggers? You know, what what could cause it? What could go wrong with my business plan to, you know, get me into cash management? You know, can we negotiate the triggers to be a little bit more borrower friendly? And then we're paying a lot of attention to how you get out of it. Because, you know, there usually isn't necessarily reciprocity on the two to your point, Andrew. Like we'll typically see, oh, you know, I I can put you in cash management for anything that's occurred on a T1 or a T3 basis, but you're not getting out for a unless it's a T6 or a T9 basis. That's not reciprocal. That's actually not fair. It shouldn't be done that way. Certainly, if I'm a lender and I'm drafting a term sheet, of course I'm going to do that because it strengthens my position and makes me look better with my credit committee and probably makes me look better with my line lender. And so that's why that's in there. But we spend a lot of time making sure that there is parity, that you know, whenever the trigger is for getting in for a debt yield or DCR or, or the period of sort of look back on the um, operating history, that it should be sort of similar towards getting out. So again, a, a lot of this negotiation needs to and should start at the term sheet phase. The, the other spin on this that I, I would add is, to the earlier point, Chris, I, I haven't seen anyone get sort of defaulted because of something that you know initially was tripped up, but then was cured. But, but what I'm hearing a lot of, and I had a phone conversation with, with a bridge lender that we're very close with, and he told me, Andrew, you've done a lot of deals together with us with him. And he told me that he sent out five notice of defaults in the last week. I'm like, my God, like that's that's a lot. And he's like, yeah, we've never actually done that in one week. And then I said, well, you know, what was precipitating it? Why'd you do it? And he said all the things that, you know, I think we could anticipate. He said, you know, I had borrowers that had, you know, CapEx busts. And so I had to remargin their loan, interest rates being depleted, springing rate cap obligations you know, that, that just weren't, weren't fulfilled. And he's, and I said, you know, is this out of the blue? Like, are you just defaulting them because, you know, you know, or did you give notice? They're like, dude, we gave so much notice. <laughs> we, we gave notice, we reserved our rights. Then we gave notice and we reserved our rights again. And then we gave notice and reserved our rights a third time. And now I've just decided that market conditions have deteriorated to the point where like, we're, we're done. We're tired of giving notice and reserving our rights. We're, we're escalating this. So that's the first time I heard about that many NODs being issued in a week, assuming it's true, in, in 15 years. What's a CapEx bust? What is a CapEx bust? So when I say CapEx, just for the backing up, I refer to capital expenditures. So in, in, a, lot of, in a lot of deals and just backing up, uh, you, you see busts more, I think, in the construction side than you do on the value add side. But uh, I think we're all familiar over the last few years, given inflation and escalation and costs, that there have been a lot of 
what we call cost overruns or busts in large construction projects. And that means that the cost of materials and labor or both exceeded, you know, what the sponsor pro forma or exceeded what we often see that was envisioned in their in their GMP in their in their contract with their general contractor. And that can happen for a variety of reasons. I don't think we have to go into all of them. But what fewer people knew about, I think, was that many value-add deals, particularly in the multifamily space, but Chris, probably in the industrial space too, that required some sort of repositioning of the asset. So you were, you were you know, going to increase rents because you were repurposing an industrial property, you know, adding demising walls, maybe you were adding a cold storage component, whatever it may be, or an apartment deal, you were turning units and, and you, were, you, know, you were adding new appliances and new flooring and new pipes, new MEP, whatever it was, you know, sponsors pro format X and the cost became Y. Very common, you know, bust outside. And that, so that's a CapEx bust. So. And a lender would just say, because that happened, we need to resize your loan because you're out of whack. A hundred percent, they will say that. And now more than ever, because, because lenders want to make sure that their position is secure. Lenders want to make sure that they have something called a fully funded holdback, which means that if you hand back the keys on the project, that they have enough money in their loan to complete your business plan. So it's critical that folks understand this. A lender never, ever, ever wants to be exposed where if they took back a property, they don't have sufficient funds in their CapEx reserve, construction holdback reserve to complete your business plan. Now, do they actually do that if they take the property back? Maybe, maybe not, but it doesn't matter. They never, ever want to be in a perceived position of weakness where they don't have enough money to complete the project. Okay, we're going to move into what I'm just going to call a deal starts going bad. What do we do? But I want to tee it up with this because I think a lot of people that have not done this a long time, they all think, oh, my banker is my best friend. I play golf with him all the time. My debt fund guy, he took me to play golf in Cabo. We're, we're boys. If things, if things don't work out, we're good, especially at the bank level. Can one of you maybe just give like a blurb on it's not up to the banker at that point. There are way more forces at play. So I always joke, all banks are a front for the government. They take you to play golf. They act like they're private institutions, but they are government controlled entities. It's why there's auditors every 90 days. It's why, I mean, it's basically a government entity. So from your perspective, if I say, is the banker really my best friend? What does that, what does that mean to you? Yeah. So we're having these really challenging conversations exactly to the point you're talking about, Chris, where the originator of loans who have enormous business development budgets and closing budgets, and they're going to Bandon Dunes and they're going to Cabo with with the borrower. And sometimes the lender or excuse me, the lawyer gets invited. I know Zach always gets invited, <laughs> um, but the lawyer sometimes gets invited. And Andrew, they only invite me because my golf game stinks. Everything's hunky dory. Everything's great. And now we're in a situation like we're in now loan maturities or rate cap uh, caps are due. And where's Mr. F you know, fun loving, golf inviting, boondoggle invitation. He's not there. He even throws his hands up and says, Hey, Mr. Miss borrower, I'm helping. I'm trying to help. There's just nothing I can do. 
This is now in the asset management department. This is now in the servicing department. And it's up to them. And there's no relationship. And those people aren't invited on the boondoggles. They're not playing golf. They're not at Pebble. And so it's very frustrating for borrowers who got sold on a relationship lending structure or idea. And that relationship is only as good as when the market is good. And when the market isn't good, that relationship doesn't seem to matter anymore because the bank needs to protect themselves and everyone's in it for themselves. So the biggest example that we are seeing is as loans are coming due this quarter, next quarter, and the couple quarters into 24, how are lenders dealing with the fact that they are that they've got an issue in 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 how do they get paid back because they know there's a very small chance of an outside lender taking them out and so extending the loan and what will it cost the borrower to extend the loan when they're not meeting their covenants and it's usually how much does the borrower have to pay down this loan have to remargin the loan and the borrower has to make a decision Am I really going to spend seven figures, multiple seven figures in remargining this loan for six months, 12 months, 18 month extension? Do I think I'm going to be out of the woods in that period of time? And if the answer is no, then it's a much more difficult conversation. All right. So I call you guys and I say, guys, I'm starting to, I got a bad deal. I've got a variable rate loan. We can call it on. We can, it really doesn't matter the asset type, but but I'm in trouble. I don't see any end in sight to being able to get out of this deal alive. And candidly, I've already gone to my investors, and they're not putting any more money in. And look, I still got to put food on the table. Like every payment I make to the bank now is just cash out of my pocket that I know I'm never seeing again. What do I start to do? Yeah. So it's a great question, and it's a really timely one, and we. We just signed up probably our, our second, what I'd call recap transaction of the year, where we had exactly the scenario you mentioned, Chris. We had a sponsor who owns four properties, four multifamily value add properties down in Phoenix. He knows and is open about the fact that his equity is wiped. He has talked to the equity extensively and they're not interested in contributing any more capital. He's got some busts. He may even have an NOD. I'm not sure yet, but <laughs> I'm finding out in real time. And he came to us and he said, you know, hey, help. Like, what, what, what can I do here? And we said, we think we can help you. And we think we can help you in a few different ways. The first way is sort of a classic post-GFC transaction, which a lot of folks probably haven't seen in 15 years. I, I haven't. But it's essentially we, we spoke to his existing equity partner. The existing equity partner confirmed everything he said. And we said, okay, you know, would you be okay if we go out and we try to recap this thing at the debt basis to start bringing a new equity partner, either pay down the loans with that money or take them out with new lenders completely and allow the new equity to make a 20 on its money. And then you, Mr. Existing Equity Partner, can get, you know, 50-50 on the ups after a 20. And it wasn't an easy conversation. And we knew the existing equity partner really well. And he, he just, you know, at the end of it, he said, you know, yes, that's much better 
than us just handing back the keys and being extinguished entirely because maybe when the market rebounds, I can get something. So the first thing we did in this situation is said, hey, we can help. And here's our thought on how this could go. You're going to be at the forefront of this. But I think that's a good thing because I think there's a lot of appetite for these sorts of transactions in the market. People have been discussing them for the last 12 months and haven't seen them. And when they have seen them, they've been on busted construction projects or in tertiary markets where people don't want to touch them. But now we're starting to see it in a really good market that, you know, maybe just got a little bit overheated, you know, from an asset value perspective. So that that's the first thing that we can do in that situation. You know, the second thing is, is, is look, once we do go out, and we field offers. If we can find someone to recap this deal at the debt basis, you know, great, a transaction occurs. If we can't, we are going to arm the lenders with a lot of data as to where the market is. So if nobody gets to 110 million in total sort of recap cost on this deal and the mark comes in at 95 or 100, lenders are going to know that. And they're going to know that we went out to 200 or 250 sources of equity. And those are the same equity groups that are probably going to back a note buyer or, or, or a note sale if the lender were to sell its note. So we're going to the same guys and the same guys are giving you that feedback. So you now know where the market is that could help inform decisions. And it doesn't mean it's over for the borrower. If that happens, some lenders will tranche their note into an A and a B and take a hope note and bring new capital and wedge in between. So there are things you can do. I think the most important takeaway for me, and I think the thing that the sponsor did in this particular situation was right, was he is trying to do everything he can to preserve any value at all for the existing equity. And, and I think if there's one thing I would um, convey to the audience here, if you are a sponsor in this situation, and many are, you're not alone, right? There are people that are here for you on a friendly basis and on a professional basis, but also do everything that you can to try and preserve value for your existing equity, because they will remember that you did this. They will care that you did this. You will also build up the right reputation in the investment community if you want to continue doing more deals versus if you don't try to do everything and you just say, I'm out, handing back the keys, see you later. Yeah, good luck rebuilding your track record. Good luck going to your existing or to new sources of capital, even with our help. When we have to talk about how did you act? How did you comport yourself when things were tough? Yeah, you know, what's interesting is that you know, the market started changing, what would you say, guys, May, June of 22. And for 12 to what, 16 months, you know, people would ask me, wow, Andrew, you must be so busy with loan workouts and loan modifications. And I said, actually, no, I'm not. It's, it's a frozen market. I think a lot of folks have their head in the sand and we're not really doing these types of transactions that we did every single day in 2008 to 2011. All of a sudden, in the last 45 to 60 days, it is it is like GFC days all over again. And so it's inbound calls on strategy, whether it's representing a borrower or representing a lender, on how to navigate through these situations. So whether it's these recap deals, which are not easy because the equity who has not transacted for the last 12 to 18 months, in order for them to come back in, they want blood. They they want a high cap rate, low basis, and it's hard to for that to pencil out. 
Preferred equities, we've done more preferred equity deals in the last few months than we've done in the last several years. The cost of that capital is getting more and more expensive. And in fact, it's harder to even recap a deal. Maybe Zach, you could talk about this and be on the equity side when when they can get equity type returns being on the senior or being in in a preferred equity position. So it's just a challenging market and you got to be creative. And the lenders that are recognizing that they must be entrepreneurial, they must be creative, will be the ones that are will end up being okay with their portfolio. And the lenders that are just going to have their head in the in the sand and 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 not think creatively and and just take back assets, they're going to just end up with the same problem, right? And so the bet that these lenders are having. And the discussion that they're having is, you know, is it a is it an operational problem and the borrower's the issue, or is it a capital markets problem and we're all in it together and we just need to restructure the capital stack so that in 24 months, we all will benefit, but we're going to take some lumps now. And we're going to do things that we don't like doing in maybe reducing loan principal, reducing or going from an advertising loan to an interest only loan, or allowing people to leapfrog us in priority and, 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 you know, subordinating our position to a more junior position, but it will allow us to have a better exit and outcome 24 months from now. Everything I'm hearing, and I think this is I, just nailing this point home. Acting in good faith matters. It's not just paying the lender is all they care about. It's preserving reputation. It's exhausting every resource. And that's free to do. It does. It's free to work hard. I mean, I think that can't be understated enough because I think a lot of people think no matter how I act, if the bank isn't getting their payment, I'm toast. And what I'm hearing from y'all is a lot of this is how you act, how you treat people and the work you're willing to put in to make it right. 1000%. You have to let your lender know at every turn what you are doing and what you are faced with because there are no surprises anymore. Pe- people know it's tough. So in most situations, I would imagine if we're like today, the lender is not going to be surprised to hear that you're in a tough spot. It'd be very few lenders. Uh, like you said, this started May of 2022. I think people that aren't in real estate don't really realize that We've been feeling this now going on 18 months, and it's kind of accelerating now. You call your lender. They're probably like, yeah, we knew this was coming. I guess my my question to y'all is, and maybe this is for you, Zach, when you know it's toast, maybe you have some cash left, but you know that every dollar that you now give out is never coming back. What do you do? Because I think there's a lot of people probably looking at their balance in their checking account going... I need to, even though I owe it to the bank, like I'm every time I make this payment, I'm toast. What begins to happen from the bank side? So then you call your bank and you say, I'm in trouble. I do have a little bit of cash left. And I've, again, equity isn't coming in. And maybe I haven't been able to even find a rescue loan. Like I'm tapped out of resources. Now what's starting to happen? Yeah. So, so great question. I, I, what we've seen is, Usually the lender will be the one in that situation to sort of initiate the dialogue 
because something will happen, right? A loan needs to be rebalanced from a CapEx perspective. A loan needs an interest reserve that has now been depleted because of the run-up in rates, or it's taking you longer to refinance or execute your business plan and you have to replenish it. There's a springing rate cap obligation, which is a big one in debt fund land where guys either didn't take out rate caps at all and something happened and they had to, or maybe they took out a one-year rate cap and they had a three-year loan and they had to do another one. So some sponsors will proactively reach out, realizing this is going to happen and say, hey, we don't have the money for this. Others will wait until it occurs, which I wouldn't do. And then they'll get sort of a notice and cure letter from their lender saying, you know, hey, bud, you know, you've got to buy a rate cap. And and that's that's gotten tough. I mean, if you look at the volatility in the 10-year you know, there was a positive story in rate caps for a long time. End of last year, it was about two points on a rate cap. Then it went down to one, then it went down to 50 bips. And now it's probably back up around a point again. So it can be pretty significant what it is that you're going to have to pay. So I, personally, I'd say over communicate upfront. But when that notice comes, you, you've got to call your lender and you've got to explain the situation and you've got to work it through with them. You got to say like, well, we don't have the capital to do this. My investors are not going to pony up here. We're concerned that you know your LTV might be at 100%. That's the reality that most folks are facing. I don't think the lender is going to be surprised by it. Come up with a solution. And maybe that solution is hire us. Maybe that solution is hire Andrew or, or anyone. It doesn't have to be us per se, but I would say in this situation, work with a capital advisor that understands how to work out transactions. Find a lender, find service providers that can help you work through the transactions on a workout basis and that kind of know what to do. And they can help you script strategies to deal with this. We're, we're doing a lot of this. There's a lot of deals now where we're getting hired to do two things. We're getting hired to negotiate with the lender over here, and we're getting hired to probably run a new process over here. And sometimes the two are overlapping. We have a deal today where the new process here is going to require some concessions out of the lender there, assuming the lender doesn't want to foreclose. And, and I, I actually believe that most lenders, not all, most lenders do not. But you can't come empty-handed. It is important to communicate up front, say, hey, all right, I know I have a problem. I don't have the million or $2 million for this spring rate cap that's coming up. Or they send you that notice and cure. All right, here's what I'm doing. Bring us into the deal or bring somebody into the deal or a workout specialist out there that can help you flip a script. There may be some deals that are just so upside down that at some point there's nothing to do. We're, we're marketing a preferred equity note right now on a big busted construction deal in Irvine. Most of the feedback we're getting is that the preferred equity is toast, the, bond, the sponsor is toast, and even the senior lender might be impaired. Right? At that point, it may be hard to do anything because there's been so much value degradation. But I don't think that's most deals today. I think most deals today are kind of on the margin and the value is probably somewhere on a spot cap rate basis today where the loan amount is. So there's room there, right? That's not a complete wipeout. That's not the lender saying, oh my God, my loan is worth half. So you you ask Chris, you know, why are lenders not foreclosing? Some will, but lenders aren't set up to own and operate real estate. They're set up to lend, charge an interest rate, receive that money again, and put it out again, and do that over and over and over again. And when you're in a, a one-off situation, when the borrower didn't execute their business plan, they'll foreclose because there will be someone else who will step in and, and, and the lender will either take it, asset management for a while, asset management for a while, and then sell it. But when you're a lender and you see a tidal wave 
of foreclosures or deed and lose, which we could talk about, or short sales. They're not set up for this. They don't have the infrastructure to operate and asset manage, especially construction projects or, or challenging real, real estate that requires a lot of leasing and tenant improvements, such as an office or multi-tenant industrial. It is, it is daunting for them. And so they want to work and have no choice but to work with the borrowers. Borrowers know that. And on the borrower side, we're seeing borrowers get approached by lenders who have made offers to their borrowers or demands to extend loans for 12, 24 months by remargining, paying down some principal. And borrowers are saying, no, I'm not. Just take my property. Here are the keys. And now it puts the lenders back on their heels saying, do we really want this asset or not? Real quick. So I know what happens when I'm in trouble and I call Zach, but Andrew, I also am going to call my attorney and be like, I need you to engage. What are you probably going to tell me in those early, maybe that first couple phone calls or advise me to do as a pure attorney in this deal so that I can start thinking of how to protect uh, my company, my entity, myself, whatever it may be. So the first thing is really goes back to what we first talked about. And reviewing the loan docs and making sure what guarantee exposure you have. That is critical. If it's a not, if it really is a pure non-recourse loan and sometimes lenders get creative and if they don't have sophisticated borrowers or borrowers counsel, they can seep in recourse-like provisions. And so that's number one. Do you have any recourse exposure? And if the answer is no, you don't have recourse exposure. Well, now we're just talking about, are you willing to give the keys back or are you not? Do you want to fight? Do you want to save this property? Do you want to continue to own it? Do you want to work with your equity providers and, and investors and in saving it? And I'll tell you what, Chris, there are plenty of clients of mine who have talked to their tax advisors who have given them the advice and have said that's all specific, it's all case by case. But they have said, if you get a foreclosure, if you just let this thing go to foreclosure and have a deed in lieu, you will be better off financially from a tax perspective. Take a tax loss, give the property back. Let's live it, let's let's fight another day with other properties, then trying to make it work with an asset that really has no light at the end of the tunnel, which will take two, three, four years plus just to get to a cash neutral position. And hopefully cap rates have come back down. Prices have come back up. The market has adjusted. Real uh, Interest rates have come down and we'll sell it then. And the decision is take the tax loss in some cases. Now, then the, then the follow-up question, I don't want to be the, the, the moderator here on your show, but the follow-up question then is, well, what does that mean if I'm taking a foreclosure on my record, a deed in lieu, a short sale? And Zach, that's, you know, I, I would love to hear your thoughts because I get that question a lot. And a lot of that impact is based on what lender foreclosed? Is it an agency, Fannie, Freddie lender, when they will put you in the penalty box for an extended period of time, if that happens, versus a debt fund where they seem to have short memories 
And so how does that affect your ability to obtain debt and equity when you have this on your record? And that's usually at the loan application stage where you're more involved, Zach, than, than I. Yeah, it is a good and a timely question, and it hasn't been a big problem until now, and it's going to quickly, I think, become one. I think your point is a good one, Andrew. It depends on who your lender is, and it also depends on how you acted. So for sure, every lender is going to ask these days and is asking, do you have defaults in your current portfolio? Do you have any foreclosures? And if you do, what are you doing to work them out? We're seeing this now in the early screen on deals. We had, and it's a new thing over the last maybe two or three months. And I expect that continues into next year. And, and, and you need to have as a sponsor, or we will coach you as a sponsor to have a letter of explanation. You've got to talk about what's going on in your existing portfolio if there are issues and get ahead of them. Because the worst thing you can do in the run-up of trying to obtain financing is hide it. And then it comes out because credit checks, flags, or they read about something worse on like real deal or curbed. And now they know that you're in trouble or they're just, you know, all these lenders talk, they all have buddies at different shops and, and they're going out having drinks and they're like, oh my God, did you hear about this guy? I mean, he's, he was just awful to us and, you know, he wasn't communicative and he just, you know, basically was stonewalling. You, you, you don't want that. I don't think for most debt funds that if you have one of these, it necessarily puts you, to your point, Andrew, in the penalty box. There's a lot more flexibility than Fannie and Freddie government lenders. There's also a lot more flexibility than banks, right? Banks are going to see this very myopically. If you have NODs and foreclosures, you're probably not getting a recourse loan for a while. And that's something to think about. So letters of explanations are something you need. And it could be that you need to bring in a co-GP. And where that line is, is not exactly known because a lot has a lot of time has gone by since the line was more known in the GFC days. And I actually don't know how different lenders are going to react to different situations, but I do know that you need to be communicative about your actions and they need to make sense. And to Chris's point earlier, you need to do the right thing. Okay. If you don't do the right thing, you're in the penalty box for sure and you're out. Okay. I want to take this a little bit back. So we're now at a point where I'm thinking I'm going to foreclose. I've exhausted all my resources. And, and even though we've talked about most lenders don't want to, we're just at no other option. And I have a personal guarantee. And now I'm really starting to, to feel the pressure. What is actually happening? So maybe it's like this, the events of, okay, we tried, we're still acting in good faith. The property is worth less. I'm in a bind and I have a personal guarantee and I have a family to feed and things and other things going on in my life. Now what starts to happen? So, and it's, that's an uncomfortable situation and you don't know your full exposure until the lender has exercised its first remedy of a foreclosure, sold the property, and now you've marked how much of a deficiency is there? That's when a guarantor knows their true exposure. And if they're getting hit on several fronts on several lenders and have recourse, and this is, you know, an example of, of what we've seen by of certain borrowers, then the ultimate decision they need to make is whether they file bankruptcy. And that option is there for them. And the government has set up this structure to allow borrowers to restructure debt across a portfolio. It's really not 
it's really not there for a single asset deal. It, it's really there because you have creditors across a portfolio who are jockeying and positioning themselves of who's going to get what piece of you. And a bankruptcy reorganization will do that in a, in a structured way. There will be consequences. But you know what, Chris, and, and Zach knows folks as well, there are plenty of established real estate professionals who have filed bankruptcy, who have come out of it 10 to 20 times stronger and wealthier than, when, than before the bankruptcy. And it's how do you do it? What's your communication style? How forthcoming were you? Or you try to screw people over or you just try to say, guys, I'm trying to make the best thing out of the tough situation. And they, they rose again. If I was going to file for bankruptcy, can you maybe, so you described it's not single asset. I have lots of creditors coming after me. I've done the best that I can do. At what point do I make, is, is it kind of an attorney telling you, hey, it's probably time to file bankruptcy? Is somebody telling that to me? Because if I've never filed for bankruptcy, I probably don't know when to. Maybe there isn't the right time or maybe there is the right time. Like, is there a certain thing that once I've crossed this line, it's probably time to think about that? And maybe the other question is so that I don't regret, man, I wish I had filed it earlier or something to that degree. Because if, if you've never filed for it, you don't necessarily know when. Yeah. And there's things called preference actions and you know things of that nature where if you are, if you are making payments uh, to certain creditors and then within a certain period of time file bankruptcy, well, all those payments can be uh, clawed back um, because of a fraudulent uh, conveyance and preference. Look, that decision is a personal decision that is made among the client, the borrower, an attorney, a financial advisor. And when you see that your, your liabilities far in a way exceed your net worth and there's no end and there's no recapitalization at Zach or other arrangers of capital have, have exhausted all avenues, then that's what the bankruptcy system is there for. And, and what assets are protected? So if I say, well, I'm filing for bankruptcy, I have nothing left, but I have to buy a meal tomorrow. And I know like maybe your house is protected or maybe your 401k. What, what is my situation? What assets can I keep and which one, and what is, what is leaving? Yeah. I look first, I, I play bankruptcy attorney on TV and we have a bankruptcy attorneys at our firm. But there are, like you said, there are assets that will be protected. And it's also state by state in terms of homestead protection. There's protections of retirement accounts and pension accounts and things of that nature, right? The bankruptcy court, along with the trustee and lawyers for a creditors committee or certain creditors will determine the, the fate of, of, of the debtor. And and the and the assets that will be split among the first, the secure creditors go first, and then the unsecured creditors go next. And you know, the there's if you're filing a chapter eleven reorganization, the the goal is 
to reorganize in a way to recast the debt amounts, to reduce the debt amounts so that you can continue as a going concern when you come out of bankruptcy and operate. And to be clear, if if you go into chapter 11, which maybe real quick, there's multiple types of chapters. There's chapter 7, chapter 11, correct? What's What is the difference between the two? 11 is a reorganization with the expectation that you will come out of this and you reorganize the debt and still operate as a business. 7 isn't just a pure liquidation. That's when they're just selling all your assets and you aren't going to have that company exist anymore. Now you as an individual, you you're st- you know, you're there and then you just reconstitute yourself and reestablish yourself under a new company, start all over, fresh, clean, no debts, no assets other than the assets that you are allowed to keep under under bankruptcy laws and and start over, partner with GPs and partner with groups who who feel that it wasn't you personally, it wasn't that you were a bad operator, but you got caught with bad timing and bad capital markets. I, I, I would add, and Andrew knows this better than me, I think when you do an 11, there's sort of a repayment path. There's a repayment concept that your creditors are going to get repaid in whole or in part. I think when you do a seven, that repayment concept extinguishes. There is no more repayment. Like you are starting fresh. So there, there are options. And, and, I, and I think it should be said, call a bankruptcy attorney if this is the route that you're headed. But I know you know en- enough at a high level. If Who makes the decision to file Chapter 7 or Chapter 11? Or do you kind of make that decision along the way once you realize kind of where you stand? A uh, combination of bankruptcy attorney and a uh, financial advisor in looking at the financials and looking at the amount of debt who the lenders are, the type of debt, secured, unsecured. Is there a prospect of, is the company a solid company that just has a bad capital stack and needs to reorganize itself? That is what chapter 11 is for. If there's just no end in sight and it just needs to be liquidated, that's chapter seven. Okay. And just really quick. So in this scenario we had discussed where I own a property, the equity's wiped out, nobody wants to put money into it. It's worth less than the loan. I file for bankruptcy. I know we're talking about a single property, but we could be talking about a portfolio. And I go into chapter 11. Am I basically going to the lender that, because the lender is going to foreclose, right? They're going to take back the asset already Am I then going to them and saying, hey, I know I there was maybe I'm calling it a $2 million delta on what you what I owe you and what you were able to sell it for. I'm basically renegotiating with that bank. Hey, maybe let's make it a million or let's make it half a million that I owe you instead of 2 million. They're agreeing. And then as I emerge from bankruptcy, I have some type of plan to pay them back whatever I owed. Or is it just you owe me two million, no matter come hell or high water? But I might create a plan that gives you much longer to pay me off. Yeah. So the reason why single asset bankruptcies are rare and really just not appropriate, and a judge will essentially kick you out of bankruptcy, is because the lend the the proper remedy is a foreclosure. That's what the that's what the deed of trust or mortgage is for. They're secured. 
the borrower is using bankruptcy purely as a stall tactic, the lender will file a motion to get out of bankruptcy. It will likely be granted three, four months, and then they will foreclose. The bankruptcy process is there because it's there's recourse debt. It's across a portfolio. The borrower does not want to choose and not le- legally entitled to choose which creditors they're going to pay and at what percentage amounts. And so the bankruptcy system, in it, it's almost like a board of the judge who has to confirm it, the creditors committee, the debtor, the trustee will all come together and figure out a plan of who's getting knocked down on their loan amounts, who's getting paid, what's the capital stack, and that plan is then put in place because there is a belief by all these players that this borrower, this debtor, if reorganized properly, will be able to be a going concern in the future and operate. And so that's what it's there for. And then we've talked about many success stories. I mean, there's people all over the place that have filed for bankruptcy and come out and they are much stronger today. They have lessons that they've learned. They've built back. They've built back wealth. Are there any other lingering effects besides maybe the fact that you have to tell lenders or people, hey, I've been in, I've been in bankruptcy before? Are there things that pass off to your estate or just any other lingering, non-obvious things that happen uh, when you file bankruptcy? Well, the bankruptcy is is your restart, right? That's that's what gives you a complete fresh start. The 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 thing that lingers with you is that every loan application or every application with for equity, you're going to check a box that you file bankruptcy. But like I said before, I've got plenty of clients where their success stories post-bankruptcy would just shock you um, because of the way they did it. All right. I know that today we've talked about tough things and... You know, these are not fun things to discuss, but, you know, business has real implications. Taking on debt has real implications. I think the positive that I've taken from today is this isn't if you're in a bad situation, it's not game over. How you act is the most important thing. And if you have people that you could reach out to and talk to lenders and lawyers and advisors start calling them early. There's no shame in telling people I'm in a bad spot. In fact, the quicker you're willing to admit it, you can probably solve a lot. And so I'm kind of ending on a high note that there is a process to get through this that actually could end to great outcomes. And Andrew, if there's any kind of parting thoughts that you have for the audience on on you know today's conversation, I'd love to pass it off to you. Yeah, I know. First of all, Chris, appreciate you having me on and, and 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 Zach. These are challenging times. And for a lot of people who got into the business, you know, a decade or 15 years ago, they've only seen up, 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 and up. And, you know, you and I have probably seen a couple cycles. There are, you know, mentors of ours that have seen more cycles. It it what was abnormal is that we hadn't seen a down cycle in 15 years that usually the cycles are seven to eight years. There's always going to be tough times. How you communicate, how you conduct yourself, understanding your rights and understanding that 
Yes, a lender's not your friend, but they also don't want your property. For the most part, they are not predatory lenders. There's very few of them, right? These lenders want to just lend money, get paid back, and do it over and over and over again. And so if you can think creatively with them, that should produce a win-win scenario. And if there is no light at the end of the tunnel and you feel just from an intellectual standpoint, a dollars and cents standpoint, that it just does not make financial sense to spend good money after bad, then don't. The last thing you should do is chase and, and, and invest more money on an asset that just doesn't have a good outcome. Give the keys back to the lender. Do a deed in lieu of foreclosure. Be cooperative. Even offer to asset manage the, the asset for the lender. I know that seems shocking to some people, but a borrower will turn into asset manager for the very same property that they owned. And it just helps the lender and it helps your reputation. Andrew, thank you so much for today. This was, this was really impactful. I appreciate it. Thank you, Chris. Really appreciate you having me on.